All right, church, are you ready for the best sermon I've given in this year? Yeah, see, because there's only one. This is the only one I've given. So, well, welcome. I'm glad you're with us. If you're new with us, my name's Kevin. I'm your lead pastor. Uh, if we haven't met, love to meet you sometime. If you come down front after uh, the service, I'd love to say hey or grab me in the hallway to meet you and your family. Uh, if you have your Bible with you this morning, hope you do. We're in James chapter 4. If you're new, we have this crazy habit of bringing our Bibles to church and then actually reading that Bible. So that's kind of who we are. And so hopefully you've got it with you. James chapter 4 is where we're going to spend some time. We've been walking together as a church family through the book of James in a series entitled, A Practical Guide for an Impractical Life. As you turn to James chapter 4, I was reading this week a, a story about the life of a man by the name of William Ernest Henley. Uh, William Ernest Henley lived in the late 1800s, and, and when he was very, very young, he got tuberculosis. And uh, when he was 12, in fact, and he had got tuberculosis in his shin, of all places. And uh, they tried to deal with it, and they tried to, 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 to cure it, but slowly over time, that tuberculosis began to spread from his shin down into his foot. And when uh, he was about 25, they had some decisions to make. They had to figure out what they were going to do because the tuberculosis was now spreading faster than they had thought it was going to. And all throughout William's life growing up, he missed out on all sorts of things because of the tuberculosis in his shin. He didn't get to play football. He didn't get to play soccer. He didn't get to play baseball. Any of the sports to do all of the things that a normal 12-year-old boy would do growing up, he didn't get a chance to do. But by the time he was 25, they had a decision to make. And the decision was, we have to amputate from the knee down. And so that's what the, the, the doctors decided to do because they did not want it to spread to the rest of his body. But after they did that, William was in and out of the hospital for the next 20 months trying to recover, trying to make sure that that disease didn't pop up anywhere else in his body and that he was healed. And over those 20 months, through all of the loss, through all of the pain, all the agony, all of the rehab, William had a lot of time to think. To think about how he would never be able to walk normally again. He would not be able to do lots of things that a normal 25-year-old boy would do. And so he began to focus on writing. Poetry, actually. And during those 20 months of being in and out of the hospital, William wrote a long series of poems entitled, In the Hospital. That's creative, right? As he named him, In the Hospital. And in these poems, you can hear the hurt. You can actually hear the pain, and you can sense the agony that he was going through. But you can also hear the resolve that he was not going to let this disease beat him. In the very last line of one of his most famous poems, Invictus, ends like this. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's what he writes. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those lines are printed all over things today. T-shirts, 
coffee mugs, computer screensavers, and more. Why? Because there's something powerful. There's something captivating, almost mesmerizing. There's stuff that's motivating. It's just energizing about those words. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Why are those words so energizing? Why are those words so appealing? Why are they so captivating? Why are they so motivating? Because what it's appealing to is my ability. I am the master of my own fate. Really? Really? I'm the captain of my own soul. Really? Really? What that appeals to us is it appeals to our pride. It appeals to, I can do it. I can make it happen. And the perfectionistic person that I am, uh, as a semi-self-controlling person, I know what that feeling is like. I can do it. How about you? I can make it happen. How about you? You come to a point in your life where you say, I'm going to make it happen no matter what. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your work, I can make it happen no matter what. It's all up to me. I'm going to make it happen. What this does is it brings me back to where we left off last week. If you were with us, where we looked at James chapter 4, verse 6. And again, in James chapter 4, verse 10, where James says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10 he says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There is this wrestling with pride that goes on in our lives, no matter what our circumstances, no matter who we are. But we read those words, right? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And we say, yeah, those proud people over there really need to read that. I know some proud people right there who really need to memorize that verse. Those proud people need to get their act together. All those proud people need to realize that God is in charge and not them. They need to humble themselves. And James says, yes, that's true, but, but how about you? How about you, proud person? How about the pride in you? So many times you're like, what, me? <laughs> not me. I mean, my spouse, uh, amen, but I don't know about me, my kids, those, those people on sports fields, but not me, not me at all. And what James does is sort of a sucker punch here. He takes us through a couple of short paragraphs in the coming verses that seem very trite, almost innocent, but what he's doing in these two paragraphs is showing us how deeply embedded pride is in every area of our life in the daily living of our life. Let's look at the first sucker punch he takes in verse 11. That's what it says. Do not speak evil of, against one another. Brothers, the, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? First thing you have to realize is when you hear the term judge, we use that phrase all the time. Don't we? we say, don't judge me. 
If you're a believer, you should never say that again. Because biblically, when it comes to judging, the judging normally in Scripture is judging my salvation. You're not allowed to judge my salvation. That's for Christ and Christ alone. You don't determine whether I go to heaven or don't go to heaven. But as a believer in Christ, you are to judge me. I need you to hold me accountable. You need to be able to look at me and go, Kevin, your life's getting wonky. Kevin, like, what are you thinking? What are you doing? What are you saying? How are you living? And I need to be able to submit to you and, and hear what you have to say. So, yes, are you supposed to judge me? Yeah, you're supposed to say, Kevin, you're not, you're not living to God's standard. The other thing in this passage we need to be aware of when he says judging, and he's talking about judging the law, the law he's talking about, don't think about Exodus 20 like the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the commands given about how we talk to one another. The Bible is filled with commands about how we're supposed to treat, speak of, and deal with one another. And so the first place he goes here in this follow-up to pride and humility is this whole area of relationships, of how we're supposed to relate to one another, of how we're supposed to speak to one another. Now, I know uh, none of us have a problem with this, but first service does. So I had to really write this message for them and not you. And, and, and so to be clear here, when we talk about pride, pride is living as if God doesn't exist. We've got to define that. Pride is living as if God doesn't exist. That's what pride really is. It's living as if God doesn't exist, and therefore, it all falls back on me. It, I'm responsible for everything. I have to take care of everything. I am what is ultimate in my life. And to be clear, humility is putting God in his proper place in my life. Ultimately, it's putting him in the place of authority, putting him in that place as the one who's in charge, and I am under him. Humility has this idea of, I am the servant, not the master. And I can say that out loud. Some of us are like, sure, 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 sure. We don't live like that. But humility is, there is a master, and the master is not me. I am the servant. Now, it's interesting in this passage how James quickly goes from talking about this whole idea of don't speak evil against your brother to say, when we do that, who is it that we're really speaking against? We're actually putting ourselves, he says, in the place of God himself when we speak evil against another person. When we are trying to determine what should happen, what should be said... What is right in the way to treat others? Who gets to decide that, the servant or the master? We're playing God. We're looking at God and we're saying, what you've written, what you've said, your commands are not enough. What you've called me to is not right because, God, you don't know my circumstances. You don't know my situation. You don't know what needs to be said right now to my kids. You don't know what needs to be said to my spouse. You don't know what's going on with my employer. I don't need to follow your word. I know what's right to speak right now in this situation. I know the best words for this circumstance. And so what does that mean to speak evil against someone? Well, to speak evil against someone means to defame them. It means to slander them, to criticize in a way that will hurt another person. It means to use words that will crush or discredit another person. He says we need to be careful not to use our words in such a way that we do those kinds of things because when we do it, 
We're saying to the law that God gave us, you're wrong. Bible, you're wrong. There is another way. And some of you are like, well, what are, what are the commands that he's talking about here? Not the law like uh, the Old Testament law, but what are some of the commands that God gives us about how we're supposed to talk and treat one another? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, what I love is he puts a bunch of them right together. I say I love it because I love it for its convenience, not because of what it says. It's interesting because the first one he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That's part of the command of God, that we should speak truth to our neighbor. And your neighbor, don't think the person who lives next door to you. The neighbor would be um, anybody that you're in relationship with. Anybody that you see out there, that's your neighbor. So when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, think the same thing. He's not meaning your actual physical neighbor. That's part of what God says we ought to do. He says, when you speak truth to your neighbor, that's the way I've designed life to be. As believers, we're supposed to be speaking the truth. That's what the command is. It's simply God spelling out for us how he designed life to work. We are supposed to be truthful people. And whether you agree with that or not, I don't know that he cares. He cares whether you follow that or not. So he says, put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. But remember, the implication here is also don't be a jerk. Because some of us are like, well, it's just the truth. So I can say it to you however I want. No, that's not the heart behind it. The idea is so many people never hear your words because of the way you say it. He cares about what you say, and he cares about the way in which you say it. But then he doesn't stop there in Ephesians 4. In verse 29, just a couple verses later, he writes, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And so, what's the command? What is God's design about how we ought to speak? Sometimes we use this verse and we say, see, you're not supposed to use foul language. That's, this verse doesn't speak to foul language per se. It speaks to what's called corrupting talk. And that, that word corrupting talk is an interesting word. It's, it makes its appearance all throughout Greek literature, and especially it's famous for being used in a story about a boy who's walking on a path through the woods. And in Greek literature, he comes up to this log that has fallen across the path, and he has a choice to make. He can either uh, go to the left or right around the log and fight the thorns and the briars and the dense thicket in order to get back to the path, or he can go over the log. The boy decides to go over the log. He lifts his foot up and he places it on top of that log and he pushes down to see if it's sturdy. And he finds that the log is wholesome. He finds that it will hold him. But when he actually steps up on it with both feet, he drops in to his knees because it's rotten inside. And then he calls the log unwholesome. He calls the log corrupt. He uses the same exact word here. And, and so the boy, he, he sinks down into that tree, and he finds it unwholesome, corrupted. It's a tree that has the appearance of being whole, but down underneath is rotten. God says we should not use words that on the surface appear good, but behind it is rotten. You're faking it. 
Down underneath, it's not good. And he thought, how do we do that in our culture today? I think we do it in a couple words, in a couple ways. We say things that are mean and hurtful to people, but we laugh while we say them because we want to take the sting out. That's not okay. That's corrupt talk. Or sarcasm. Some of us have that spiritual gift, right? <laughs> sarcasm. And in a lot of ways, sarcasm can seem innocent. It can look like humor or just be innocent fun, but, but down deep inside, that sarcasm is meant to hurt. It's meant to criticize. It's meant to put somebody else down. Sarcasm is usually really funny unless you're the object of that sarcasm and then you just feel dumped on. James says this isn't good. We shouldn't do that. You're breaking God's command about your tongue when you do that. Be very careful. Instead, James says, he goes on in that verse and says, we need to speak words that build up. That phrase should be, you're supposed to edify. It's, and I like the word edify because it's an engineering term. And the word edify means you're going to lay a, a solid foundation on which you can build. So think your house. You want a solid foundation so you can build. That's edify. So that word has come to mean relationally, you need to, to use words in your relationships that strengthen. You need to use words in your relationships that build up. You need to use words in your relationships that encourage other people. If you want a fantastic marriage, if you want to be a fantastic parent, if you want great friendships, learn to be a great encourager. That's how you'll have great relationships. If your relationships are busted across the board, you probably stink at encouragement. And if you ask your family, they'll tell you. Because you're supposed to be truthful. Remember the last one? <laughs> you know, like, you're supposed to like, say, yeah, we, that's an area we need to grow. That's how we ought to use our words. Over and over again, the Bible says this is how we should speak to one another. Instead, we start our conversations off like this, don't we? I know I shouldn't be telling you this, but that's how we start them off. Oh, you know, I haven't told anyone else about this, but, but I think I can tell you. You know, it's just one person. And what follows that statement is exactly what James is talking about. We can start getting into those kinds of situations where we start talking about people and we start talking to people. I've got a problem over here, so I want to talk to all of you about that problem instead of not saying anything going to that person. That's sinful, church. But then we say things like this, don't we? Well, before I go talk to them, I just needed someone to bounce my thoughts off of. That's called sin in the Bible, just so you know. You don't get to bounce your thoughts off people. Go to the other person. Why? Because as soon as you speak to this person, bouncing ideas off them, you're corrupting them and how they think about that person. Because they don't get to hear anything from that person. They only know what you tell them. They only know your side. Stop bouncing ideas off people and go to the person and talk with them and listen to them. Don't drag someone else in because they can't unhear what you say to them. You're hurting that person and that person in the same moment. 
When we start using opportunities and sly techniques to talk about others in a critical way, rather than going to them, working through things, building up the relationships, we become so good at times at becoming those who tear down relationships rather than building bridges of relationships with our words. James says, be very, very careful. Watch your tongue. This is the only place he talks about the tongue. Our words are a reminder of what's really going on in our hearts. For the tongue is the tattletale of the heart. Your tongue reveals what's going on in your heart. And look at verse 11 again. See, see where he says, or judges his brother? The word judge there, it's the idea of who made you judge and jury. We say that, don't we? Who made you judge and jury? Who made you the one who ultimately decides and gives the verdict about everything? Who do you think you are that you get to decide what is right or wrong about how we speak to one another? Because really that's God's decision. When we think we can speak to people however we want, we're getting in the face of God and we're saying, we don't believe you. We don't believe you. In fact, I don't need you right now because I've got this under control. Because what I'm saying or what I'm doing is what is right and needed right now. And it is better and it's more correct and it's more fitting for what's happening right now than what you've laid out in your word. That's the truth behind what's going on here. See, this is an interesting passage because it comes back to God in this whole thing of pride and humility. Pride says, I'm living as if God doesn't exist when it comes to how I talk to other people. He might rule in my life here, but he doesn't rule in my life here. So I'm living as if I'm the lawgiver, the command giver. I'm the judge of what's right and wrong, not God. He says if we fall into that trap, and when we do... We're living in pride, and God opposes the proud. Now, last week, if you looked at verse 6, I probably should have stopped in verse 6 longer than I did because uh, most people misunderstand this concept of what it means when it says God opposes the proud. Because it's not a phrase that means he doesn't like it. God opposes the proud does not mean God doesn't like it. It doesn't mean God doesn't like pride. That's not what he's saying. That's how we read it. In the original language, it's a confrontational phrase. It means that God will get in your face. If you're prideful, God will get into your face. God will bow up to you. Ever feel like that someplace? Especially guys? Where you're like, I'm just going to have to deal with you. I'm, I might have to hit you. That's the, the heart behind this. Like when you're prideful, God bows up and steps up and gets in your face. And he says, I love you too much to let you hurt yourself and to hurt the other people around you right now. Your pride is that damaging. He knows that pride will do that. And he says, I'm going to be in your face. That's a strong statement. That's not like, oh, I don't like pride. That's like, no, I don't like pride. We're going we're to fix it right now. It's a finger in the face moment. And I find myself this week after reading about this, I find myself thinking and pondering about how I spoke and treated people during the holiday season, especially my family. Ouch. My family went to Bush Gardens, and I began to think, how did I speak to the people at Bush Gardens? I hate waiting in lines. I hate 
waiting in lines. How did I speak to people? I was at Passion with our young adults in Atlanta this week. How did I do there? How did I do with church members this past month? And so on. And Kevin, that's an indication of the pride in your life. When I've put another person down, subtly, gently even, but I've put them down. Kevin, that's an indicator of pride in your life. You're living life differently than God designed. And God is going to be in my face because of that. God bows up to me because of that. And James doesn't stop there with one sucker punch. He, he, he begins to talk about something else. Look at verse 13. He says, now listen. Or your Bible might say in verse 13, come now. That phrase, come now, is actually a phrase used in comedy situations in Greek literature. It's probably be better read as, come on. Don't be so ridiculous. You actually believe that? That's the heart behind it. Like, that's, you, you got to be kidding me. You don't actually believe that. Come on now. That's the idea in verse 13. He says, now listen. You who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. He's like, aren't you cute? How silly are you? He says, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? A better, probably more complete way of translating that would be, tell me, tell me what your life's going to be like tomorrow. Because like, you know, right? Think Job. When God spoke to Job and was like, oh, you know where all the waters are held, right? You tell me, I'm listening. That's the idea behind this verse, because you know what's going to happen next year. You know what's going to happen in five years from now. Tell me. You don't even know what's going to happen this afternoon in a football game. You don't know what's going to happen this afternoon, what you're going to have for lunch. You don't really know any of that. Come on. It's like a person's talking as if God doesn't exist, as if they really have control over their today and tomorrow. They have control over the circumstances for next year? Do we really? Do we really actually have control over what's... If COVID taught us anything, it's how little control we have. He says, come on, really? Do you really believe that? Verse 14, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Do you really understand, God says, do you really understand how life on earth works? Because compared to who God is, the eternal God, the all-powerful, infinite God, we're like a mist or a fog that comes up early in the morning, but as soon as the sun comes out, it just sort of takes it away and it vanishes, and you can't even see it anymore. He says, by comparison, that's all that we are compared to God. We're a mist. And we have the audacity to say, you know what? I know what tomorrow's going to bring. You know what? I know what my life's going to be like a year from now because, you know, I'm in charge of that. And some of you right now are like, Kevin, we know you're a planner. You've got things planned out for this church 18 months down the road. And some of you are like, and I'm a planner too. Are you telling me then that we can't make any plans? Are you telling me we can't think a year ahead and make plans for anything in the future? That sort of thing. And all the spontaneous people in the room right now are thinking, I knew it. You guys are all evil. Every last one of you plans. I knew it. God hates making plans. Kevin said it. No, no, that's not what this means at all. What James is saying to the planners in the room is, do you make plans with a closed fist or open hands? That's what he's saying. And the planners in the room are struggling with that because we really want to do this, right? 
actually, we really want to do this. <laughs> Most planners want to say, no, 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 I've got it all figured out. But that's what he's asking. Do you make plans with a closed fist or open hands? That's why James goes on in verse 13, on verse 15, to say, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. James says, we ought to say it like this. I think this is going to happen, or that's going to happen. I would like for this to happen, or that to happen. I would like, or I'm hoping for to accomplish this, or, or to make this kind of profit. That's what I would like to do, Lord willing, hands open. God, if that's what you want, I mean, this is what I'd like, but God, really, ultimately, what you want. So what's the difference? And some of you are like, does it really matter? Does simple words like that matter? It does matter. Because one acknowledges the one who is actually and ultimately in charge. The other one acts as if I'm in charge. That I'm the ultimate instead of him. He says, no, that's just arrogance. That's just pride. But here's the strange part. I think people are often confused about boasting. You know that there's good boasting and bad boasting, correct? There's good boasting and there's bad boasting. Because a lot of people think that boasting is arrogance itself. And that's not true. That's not biblical. Because there's good boasting and bad boasting in the Bible. You're like, good boasting? Yeah, there, there are all places in the New Testament where we're told to boast in God. We're told to focus on, get excited about, and to tell other people about God. There's all sorts of places in the scriptures I'm told to boast about God, to focus on, to get excited about, and to tell other people about how God is changing my life. Like, I should actually boast about how God is changing my life. That's a good thing. But he says here, he says, this kind of boasting is evil because you're boasting in the wrong thing, because you're boasting in yourself. You're boasting in your own pride and arrogance. Look at who I am. Look at where I'm going to go. I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to make this happen over there, and I'm going to accomplish these things. Look at me and what I'm doing. And James says, that is evil. And that word evil is important to understand because most of us today don't understand the biblical concept of evil. Because our understanding of evil actually is influenced, our morality when it comes to this, is influenced heavily by Plato in 400 B.C. What he said is that evil has always existed, and it will always exist, and good and evil are equals. That's what he said. And, and, and he said that they're like two dogs in a backyard. One's good and one's evil, and they're constantly fighting each other, and they've always fought, and they will always fight. They will never stop fighting. And Plato said, if, if you want the good dog to win, then you need to feed the good dog, and you need to starve the bad dog. But that bad dog's never going to go away. To him, good and evil are polar opposites. This is good, and the polar opposite of that is bad. Now, unfortunately, we've brought that idea of good and evil into the Western world. Because growing up, the good cowboy always wore what color hat? And the bad cowboy always wore what color hat? Absolutely. And that filtered into our stories. That filtered into our movies. It was this sort of either or, these polar opposites of what happened. But that's not what evil is in the Bible. As they flip to the next slide, that's what evil is in the Bible. God is good, 
Everything about him and everything he does is good. By his very nature, he's good. He is the very inherent definition of what is good, and his goodness defines how life ought to be lived as good. And biblically speaking, any slight variation is not good. So on one end of the spectrum is pure white or pure light. Every variation from that is evil. It's not polar opposites. Any variation, and this is how we live it out. We've named something called white lies. There's big lies, lies or real lies where you're actually a liar. But if I say a white lie, well, you know, it's no big deal. It's just a white lie. It didn't hurt anyone. That's this, we use polar opposites. God's going, no, there is truth in any variation whatsoever of truth is evil. So if you tell a story and you leave out facts to spin it so you sound more funny than the story allows, and it, maybe you leave it out intentionally or unintentionally, or you share things to manipulate the way people view you or view a situation or view others, that's evil. There's no such thing as white lies. There's not truth. That's all. Everything else, every other shade is still evil. That's what he's saying. That's the biblical difference between good and evil. And that's important to understand as we get to verse 17. James is going to talk about what we do when we pursue evil. He says, all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. He's like, if you know what you're supposed to do and you don't do it, he says, you are actively pursuing evil. That's a lot. Now, I've shared with you multiple times about how I wrestle, especially on Sunday. I wrestle with when I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me I, I swing by Target to pick up something, and the Holy Spirit's like, talk to the person about Jesus. And your pastor oftentimes will go, I'm not doing it. I'm tired. There's a football game on. I need a nap, and I'm hungry. This is not time to be talking about Jesus. I'm not proud of that, but I wrestle. There's an internal wrestling inside of me that goes with that. And here's the deal. If I walk away and say, I'm not doing it, according to because I know what I ought to do, I'm pursuing evil. But if I go, well, you know what I'll say, I'll, inv I'll just invite them to church, because that'll be good enough. That's pursuing evil. That's a slight, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm supposed to talk to them about the saving power of Jesus Christ, but I'm not doing it, so I, I try to get out of it by doing close enough. I just, I, I have a slight variation. That's evil. That's your pastor, okay? Confession time, I guess. I, and maybe you wrestle the same way, but that's the hard part about what's going on. And when I choose to pursue evil, to pursue anything that's different, any slight variation, when I choose to pursue it, it's called sin. And so I'm like, Kevin, why does this even matter? It matters because James is trying to make a point here. God is opposed to the proud, to all of us who fall into that trap of thinking there is no God. Actually, I'm God. And you say, Kevin, but Kevin, I've believed in God for a long time. But James isn't talking to you about what you believe. He wants to know how you live. He knows what you say. Do you live 
like there's a God? Do we live like there's a God who's in charge, a God who is ultimate, who is our master in every area of my life, every single day? Or do we live as, as if I'm the only one I'm accountable to? Do I, do I live accountable to him in all of my decisions at work, in all of my decisions at home, all of my decisions in my neighborhood and all? And some of you are like, Kevin, I could, that would take so much time if I have to, every decision you're telling me, Kevin, I'm supposed to talk to him about? Uh-huh. It's sort of like the first time you wear glasses. If you ever were a non-glasses-wearing person, you put them on the first time, they're like, walk slow and be careful because you're like, whoa, that's kind of weird. That's a strange feeling. But what? Four hours later, you don't even know they're on your face. Same thing. When you start making decisions through the power of the Holy Spirit, listening to the Holy Spirit, the process happens very, very quickly. But instead, that's not what we do. Do I live it as if there's a God who's in charge? How many times have we found ourselves in a situation? I was just with the young adults this week at Passion in Atlanta. And we were there, and so many of them are wrestling with next seasons. What school? Do I transfer schools? What am I do for a job? All of that. And the questions that so many times we do is we make a pros and cons list, don't we? Or, or, or we make a facts and feelings list. And we read all of that. And we process through all that. We maybe talk to a friend or two. And then we usually come close to a decision and we say goodnight. But we never actually pray about it. We never actually say, I'm going to sit for a second and see if God has anything to say about this. I never open my Bible looking for the principles given in Scripture surrounding this very issue. I've never brought God into the equation. God, what do you want me to do? Because most times we're scared because what he might say, we're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. But that's what he's wanting. Do we bring? Because prideful people don't ask God what he thinks. Because who makes the decision then? Me. And this is so important because when we say this, in that moment, we're coming in humility. When we say, God, what do you want? We're saying, there is a God who is ultimately in charge, and that God is not me. Pride is way more prevalent in the Christian world than we want to admit. Pride is far more prevalent in this church than we want to admit. Pride is far more prevalent in this guy than I want to admit. And God says, no more. This should not be. Because if you're going to keep it, I'm going to bow up to you because I oppose the proud. And so you're like, so what's the solution? Because this is a terrible message again. Like, how do I solve? Well, really, without preaching the same message as last week, it's really a reflection on the 10 things he gave us last week. Do you remember those 10 things? Like, submit to God, resist the devil, come near to God, confess, repent, grieve, wail, mourn. It's coming to God saying, listen, I'm a mess. God, I'm a mess. And I've been fighting to do it my way, based on my wants, based on my preferences, based on, on my desires. And when I don't get them, God, I complain. And I speak to people in terrible ways. And I send the emails that I should never send. And I post things on social media I should never post. And I grow in bitterness and I pout and I let my tongue say anything it wants to say to anyone who will listen. 
I've been living like I get to make all the decisions, God, and like you don't even exist. God, I want to put myself under your authority in my marriage. I want to put myself under your authority in my home, in my church, in my parenting, in my work, in my community, and in my school. Oh, God, help me to confess and deal with this sin that's in my life. Help me to be honest about those times that I've talked about other people, complained about everything, to be honest about those times I've made decisions in my life that I didn't bring you, God, into the equation at all. To be honest about the sin in my life, oh God, help me to grow in humility. Because God, on most days, I am not good like you were good. God, on most days, I am not perfect like you are perfect. I make mistakes. I need you in control of my life. I need you to be Lord of every area of my life. Lord, I need you. That's us. That's humility. And so we find ourselves right back where we started. As we prepare for communion instead of, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my soul. May the cry of your heart during communion be, Lord, you are the master of my life. God, you are the captain of my soul. God, everything I am and everything that I have is yours. My time is yours. My money is yours. My kids are yours. My friendship, my influence, my work, my power, any fame, my future, is all of it is yours. All of it. I place it all under your authority and under your power. And when we do this, Things will never be the same in your marriage. If you will do this, things will never be the same in your parenting. If you will submit all that you are to his lordship and leadership, things will never be the same in your spiritual life, in this community. Church, things will never be the same at Faith Covenant. Things will never be the same.